So hello everyone, this is A Moment in History, episode 10. I'm Harrison Zyberg, and this is from WCCS Podcast. Again, if you've been listening to this, or if this is your first one that you have lis- listened to, uh, we are basically going to be talking to someone, and they're going to tell us their experiences surrounding the year 2020 um, and everything that has been going on. So again, I'm Harrison Zyberg, and my guest here today, if they want to introduce themselves, Hi, my name is Jenny. I am a rising sophomore in college and political science major. I am from Malden, Massachusetts, and the pronouns are she, her, hers. Great. So, again, you're the 10th interview I've done so far. Um, but I haven't spoken to anyone who has volunteered or worked on a presidential campaign before. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit, I guess, basic background of who you worked for and what you were doing. And then, yeah, let's start off with that basic background of who you're working for and when you did, who, what you did. Um, being from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren is my senator, and that's a representative I'm really, really proud to have. She's someone who is not only really good at her job, but she represents my personal political beliefs and my values in Washington. So when she ran for president, um, it was almost natural that I would end up supporting her just because of how closely aligned we are when it comes to ideology, policy, um, goals, and our vision for what would be good for America, what would be the best for the party. And after she announced, um, I started volunteering for her, and that was most of what I did. Um, With the exception of Iowa, I went there in the January 2020 as a field intern, Um, and I flew into Des Moines a month before the caucuses, and we basically knocked doors for her about 10, nine hours a day, just talking to voters, hearing the concerns of the American people, trying to figure out how can this campaign best represent these people, and how do we do what is right by them, because, you know, they, I hear about healthcare struggles. I hear about their worries about what if Donald Trump wins re-election. I hear about their hopes and their dreams, but also their fears. And getting to see the American people in such a visceral way and connect with individuals personally was something I feel really fortunate to be able to do. And at the exact same time, I was representing a candidate who I will be forever so proud of. And I am really in awe of the campaign that she ran and the team that made it all possible. So that was my experience um, with the presidential primaries. And now I'm on to my next fights. So I'll, I'll ask questions about Iowa because that's definitely an experience that no one else I've interviewed has had. But when you weren't in Iowa and you were spending your time volunteering, what were you actually doing for the campaign? Um, so we were there, we were there to be field interns, that was the official title for the work that we were doing. And what that includes is just field organizing um, and doing it in an extended capacity, whereas if you're a volunteer, you would you know, maybe go up to New Hampshire for a day or two every week and you would knock a packet and that would take a few hours. Um, while we were in Iowa, we would stay with um, a supporter family um, and we would you know, have organizers who are mentors and who would teach us the skills of field organizing. And a lot of the field that we did was to knock doors, to go to the voters, meet them where they are, to organize everywhere. And 
to have those person-to-person conversations so that voters don't have to come find us. We go find them and we bring the campaign to them in order to better serve them. Um, so it was just a lot of relational organizing when it comes to people in the community. And we were, you know, I was in Ankeny, just north of Des Moines, and I was there for the entire week. And the organizers who were on the ground in Iowa, they stayed in one place the entire time they were there. And some of them worked on the campaign for more than a year. So it was just really finding roots in that community and strengthening those relationships and then serving the people that, that were there, even though we were president of campaign, to make those connections on a really deeply personal level. And specifically while you were door knocking in Iowa, do you have any memorable experiences? Was it that anyone, yeah. or any people who you spoke to that still stand yeah. out in your memory all these months um, later? I got stranded a few times. That was great. Um, because it was really cold. So my phone would just die because the battery gets drained by the, you know, like 32 degree temperatures. Um, and so that was, you know, fun. And once, you know, I was literally sitting in a stranger's car and she was so nice. She was a college student and I was just charging my phone and she wasn't very people engaged, we were just chatting and people in Iowa is so nice that like that happens. Um, and as for memorable, like actual people that I was supposed to be talking to, um, there was this door that I knocked. It was a house on a golf course, which was really strange to me as someone who, you know, lives north of Boston and doesn't see that kind of landscape and that kind of like residential space. Um, but it was this really long turf and, you know, winding streets. And there was this really lovely couple who invited me in and I just stood in the living room and just had a nice long chat and it was wonderful. Um, so it's, it's all those little moments of just real human kindness and that sense of connecting over the things that we deeply care about, even though we are strangers, to find something in common as Americans was something that, you know, carries me to this day. And it's why I believe in field organizing and what makes me hopeful. But looking back, the most memorable thing was the last conversation I had um, before I left the state. And it was with a Black man who was living in a very affluent and overwhelmingly white neighborhood and I was a very white state and that's part of the reason why caucuses are so problematic um is because they're inaccessible but also because it makes it so that Iowa goes first and a really white state does not represent the country geographically and and demographically um but we had a really really long conversation it was I was in his house just chatting with him and you know I met his kids we were there for 45 minutes and usually you know like you're lucky if you get four minutes with the person but we had a conversation you know about race in America about history we had a conversation about you know about fear about political courage about policy about economics about all these things are so tangible in our lives because they affect us personally and about how all these issues connect with each other and how it connects to his presidential election. And it was one of those moments where, you know, you meet someone and you connect and you click and they open up to you and you do the same. And if I ever go back to Iowa, I would absolutely just knock on his door again, just to, you know, just to follow up and to check in on his family. And it was just really, really wonderful. And it's part of why I loved Iowa so much is because I got to do something like that. And that's the kind of thing that makes me keep going back to field organizing. So every time I have that conversation, it makes me want to go do work for another campaign all over again. So I guess it's a very quick question, but 
So when you got into that person's car, was it a stranger's car? Yeah, didn't know her, but she looked nice. She was like 18 years old. It was great. We bonded. See, I, I have a personal story sort of like that, but I'm not going to say it now. You can tell me fun. later. You can I'll tell, tell you later. later. But also, um, I guess to go back to the very beginning of your involvement on the Warren campaign, just how did you become involved? I think people may volunteer, may phone bank or knock on doors like in their own communities, but you mm-hmm. went to a completely different state. So like, how did you get involved? How did you get that involved? Um, so I followed a lot of Warren staffers on Twitter and the thing with political Twitter is that there's pockets of it. And when it comes to campaign Twitter, it's how, you know, staffers and organizers and, you know, interns and fellows from all places in the country kind of, you know, follow each other's work. And we do the organizing together and we share it online and we share the moments of hope. We share the stories that we experience. You know, there's many, many pictures of rural Iowa and it's lovely every time I see one of those in my timeline. So because of the internet and because of social media, we were able to stay in touch with each other in a way that's, you know, like we don't, we never met them and we don't work directly together, but we are working towards, you know, the same vision of a better world. And we're working for the same woman who's leading that fight and being able to just like tune into that was just really wonderful because it's, you know, like the news media doesn't cover all those little things and you don't get access to those stories unless you hear from people on the ground personally and that was just really really wonderful to build that community and to you know connect with the campaign's individuals working on it because Warren's campaign was never just about her it was her staff and her organization made it so valuable um so because of pre-existing connection after they launched the winter internship program a field organizer from Iowa who I was mutuals with on Twitter actually just DM'd me and was like, Jenny, come to Iowa. And I'm like, okay. And then I did. Um, the actual process of like actually getting there was, it, it took a few weeks for me to plan it all out, but it was just someone asking me to go to a state where they've been working to help them win that election. And me knowing that it mattered, no matter the result, the work they did that matter. And I wanted to be a part of that if I could. And I could, so I did. I guess if there's one experience that you had uh, while you were volunteering um, that I guess I wanted to say one, but are there any experiences that you had while volunteering that you would want other people to know about that you would be a really great experience you had, like you mentioned before when you were uh, canvassing or it could have been, I guess, a not so great experience. I really just, I I guess you're always going to remember of your time. Um. I've like never had a mean person ever like confront me at the door. Like I've never met someone mean while door knocking um, or, you know, organizing. And like even the tough conversations, they come from a place of like, you know, like absolute sincerity. And it's the conversation is tough, but only because it's deeply emotional and personal. Um, But like, I love those conversations. I welcome them and I want more of those conversations. The other conversations are the ones that, you know, they're, they're never coming from a place of wanting to do harm or to hurt someone, but they come from a place of, like, fear. Um, and it's whenever I, you know, talk to someone and they're resistant to what I'm proposing, but not because they don't want that candidate. I've talked to some people, you know, who love Elizabeth Warren, but who were 
deeply, deeply afraid of Donald Trump winning re-election, and that was like so all-encompassing. Um, those were the hard ones, and you know, these people's rejection of my candidate wasn't out of a place of like I don't like her or I don't respect her, but out of a place of they're a voter who is deeply afraid, and trying to have that conversation is always difficult because it's not about you know like logic or policy it's about you know how do you empathize with someone's fear and how do you recognize that comes from a real place and how do you you know offer them hope in spite of that you know how do you try to be someone talking to this person and remind them that you know change is in fact possible but your fears are rational but also you know i think that we win when we are brave i think that we win when we choose political courage instead of fear but also at the same time like this administration has affected you personally and that impact is real because you live it and i live it it's how do you balance that out and how do you rationalize that without demeaning it and how do you leave that person behind you know, you would never talk to them again, but, you know, try to make a good impression. Try to give them just a little bit of hope, no matter how small it is, that maybe, like, because it's not even about winning their vote anymore. It's about, this is a, this is a voter who has concerns, and I'm an organizer who, you know, they've shared that with. And that's, there's a great responsibility to that, and I always feel like it is not just my obligation to the campaign, but my obligation to the work I'm doing to respond to that and to give hope to that and leave them behind feeling a little bit better than when I first met them. Uh, now, obviously, during this point in the political campaign, the presidential campaign, the primaries, although not technically over, are over because yeah. the nominees have been chosen. So I guess since you were such a big Warren supporter, what has been your perception since she dropped out a few months ago of the presidential um, campaign? The thing about Elizabeth Warren is that, you know, after a campaign is over, the staffers are freed from the responsibility and they can say whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. And Elizabeth Warren staffers have never stopped saying nice things about their boss. And, you know, the things that they tell you after they left their jobs, just it paints this image of a work environment that was productive and progressive and inclusive and a leader who wasn't just good at her job, but so overwhelmingly kind to the people who worked for her and, you know, who recognized so fully that she, her campaign is only as good as her staff and her team. And that kind of work environment and that kind of a movement, that kind of leadership is something that I admire so much because I see the impact of that. And the impact is when the campaign is over, everyone is really sad. But the thing is they learn so much from it. You know, her staffers and her team, they're fighting for progressive candidates all across the country. And they carry the work that they did on the presidential campaign with them when they do that. They carry the skills, they carry the stories, they carry the hope. Um, you know, when the campaign was over, it was really deeply sad, but it was also, you know, you were able to look back and realize that we did everything we could, and that matters. And we laid out a vision for the United States of America that will outlive this candidate and this campaign. We 
did so much good when it comes to policy. We established a platform that was thoughtful and intensive and all-encompassing and tried to serve the needs of the American people and tackle problems head on without fear, without hesitation. And you know, we fought for liberty and justice every single step of the way and we fought for a better world. And the people who did that made it possible and the candidate made it possible, the movement made it possible. So, you know, when all is said, all is done, I look back and that experience will continue to inspire me forever. The work the campaign did will carry me for the literal rest of my life. And I'm not alone in that feeling. I think that's the most extraordinary thing is because it's a legacy. It's a very tangible legacy. And I feel really proud to have been a small part of that. I guess for this question, what do you think of the current two nominees for of Joe Biden and President Trump? I think that, you know, in 2016, there was a less of two evils approach to the candidates. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the case again. Um, I think the progressive movement has often felt very left out of the Democratic Party, like the Democratic Party isn't fighting hard enough for us. And that there's clear ideological lines between the progressive wing and the people who are leading the party. And I feel like there's, you know, clear fractioning and all of these things. And that's reasonable and that it's real and that's valid. But I also think that one would be a good president, one is experienced, one would hire a great staff. And one would, you know, even in spite of all mistakes and flaws and human error, one of them would be a president who at least does the job of a president. And, you know, Joe Biden is a moderate Democrat and I am a progressive independent. And we come from very different backgrounds and we have very different visions for the country and we have different ideas of what good policy is. But I trust that his White House will be one that allows continuity and one that, you know, puts an end to the unrest. And I trust that if Joe Biden is the president of the United States come 2021, the people in the party on the left will push him towards them. And the leaders of the progressive movement will have a partner they can work with. And even if he does not ever adopt their agenda completely, he will at least hear them out. And I think it's important that we have a partner, no matter how left out sometimes we feel like, or you know how disappointed we are from the result of this election. I think it's important that we try to work with what we have because it's that or nothing. It's very literally that or nothing. And I would much prefer President Biden over President Trump's second term. Now, if you were if you were an advisor to Biden, if you were like a top senior advisor, and you had to talk to him about his vice presidential pick, who would you advise him to pick, and I guess and why? Um, well, as someone who worked for a different candidate, because I thought that she was best for the job, and as someone who understands the president 
vice presidency to be the second in line for the president to be the person who is the most ready to step in if that ever becomes necessary as a person who believes that the vice president um you know is a partner with the president and that they work together um i would advocate for elizabeth warren of course but i also believe that you know a candidate like Ayanna Presley should be considered. I don't think she is, but I think she should be um, because I think it's really important that we recognize the work of progressive women who are leading the movement, especially when they are a person of color. Well, like Ayanna Presley, a black woman who is leading those fights, and you know who is such a fearless leader in her role and i think she would not only be a great vp but she would be someone who advocates for the progressive movement in a way that we really need in the white house so i think you know a progressive definitely um and it's just a matter of which progressive i really hope he picks a progressive whoever she is now just moving on to a different topic but obviously one of the biggest news stories of the year and really the reason that this podcast series is happening is because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. And I was just curious, I've asked this for, I think, most of my uh, people I've interviewed, but do you remember the exact moment that you learned because of COVID, you weren't going to be going back to campus and we got to move to online learning? PC staggered it for us. Um, you know, I finished midterms and midterms on the week of the Super Tuesday and everything that was happening with the campus was chaotic. But I finished my terms and I left campus that Friday and I came home for spring break and you know I got a few days before quarantine. And then I think the next Tuesday I went to quarantine. I like really haven't left it since then. Um, and in the few weeks since, you know, we first got a, we are not coming back to campus until mid-April. And then we got a, we're not coming to campus at all. So it was staggered. And, you know, some people just got kicked off campus in the middle of the week and was totally wouldn't be coming back until next year, maybe. Um, with us, it was like, we were, we were already gone from campus. So it wasn't like we just got kicked out, which was good. Um, and theirs, you know, for a little while, at least the whole that we'd be going back for the rest of spring semester. So it was really staggered. And therefore it didn't hit me very hard. Um, but the pandemic has been, you know, a completely change, a complete change of what is normal. And I think that the political implications of this global pandemic is enormous. Now, a question I like to ask, and I've asked a few people, is that I was curious, has the pandemic, but also really the entire year of 2020 and all of the events have had, that have happened, do you think that for you has affected how you're gonna view the things you study or the or the career you go into? Like um, I am not just a policy major, but I'm also on the pre-law track. And, you know, it's been my intention for years to pursue civil rights, human rights law. Um, and the pandemic has only reaffirmed my conviction that the work I intend to do with my life is not only important, but it's crucial. That's what I choose to do. Um, so the pandemic hasn't changed it 
in fact, has reaffirmed it. It has reaffirmed it in multiple ways. The global pandemic has revealed a, a such, such a deep inequality in not just a country, but in our world. And it has revealed, you know, just how many people are on the edge of poverty, on the edge of homelessness, and how much the government of the United States does not care about that. And I don't think, you know, like, I think it's definitely worse because of the current administration, but I think like, the United States government, no matter who is in power, has never done enough for the American people, for the ones who need it the most. And I think that that kind of wake-up call is, it's terrible, it needs to happen, but I'm hoping, I'm cautiously hopeful that maybe, maybe, just maybe, it will push leaders to act and to act in a way that makes this country more democratic and more attentive to the needs of the people who need it the most. Um, and the pandemic has revealed just how fragile our society is and how dependent we are on our essential workers and how underpaid these workers are and how much they sacrifice, not just during pandemic, but always, how much they always sacrifice to keep the society functioning. And I think it's beyond time that, you know, we advocate for higher wages. It's beyond time we advocate for better hours, that we give healthcare workers the protection they need in order to do the jobs when they're literally saving lives. It's beyond time that, you know, we fight for stronger unions, that we give individual workers more negotiating power when it comes to how much they get paid, you know, what benefits they get, how well they're treated by their employees, by their employers. And I think it's also beyond time that we have a real conversation about our healthcare system and how not just fragile, but how in some ways corrupted it is and how, you know, a stock market should not be going up in the time of pandemic when everybody is suffering. And, you know, it shouldn't, like the healthcare industry shouldn't be profiting in any kind of way from a pandemic. And yet they are, and they do from such instances because that's what the system was set up. And I think it's time that we talk about not just the capacity of the healthcare system, but also who it works for and who it protects. Um, and it's also about the economy and why that matters more than human lives. And, you know, I understand that if the economy is bad, people suffer, people lose their homes, people lose their jobs. And that is awful, but it almost seems that the government has a disregard for human for the human toll of it. As long as the economy is good, everybody will be fine. But the truth is, that's not how it works. Not when a virus is killing people all across the world. And it's also been really distressing to see the American government not act and not respond when the governments of other nations. Are doing so much more and it's working. Um, it's not just a disregard for human life, but also disregard for science. Um, so, you know, witnessing the pandemic has been detrimental to my faith in current systems, um, you know, which I didn't always have the most amount of to begin with, but it has revealed problems that even though I was aware of, I wasn't aware of the magnitude of them, and now I am. And I think that that's a revelation that many people are coming to across the nation. And I'm cautiously hopeful, once again, that something good comes out of it and that reform happens and change happens. And, you know, the fact that there are progressives running and winning all across the country to address these problems 
I think that that gives me hope because it's now their mandate to go to Congress and fight for these things. And if we do that, if we if the people put the power behind that, I am cautiously hopeful that we'll come to a better world and a better country. And to bring it sort of specifically to your college experience during uh, quarantine and during a pandemic, what would a typical class look for you with online learning? Mm-hmm. Typical class would be me waking up five minutes before class um, because quarantine has been detrimental to my sleep schedule um, and to just any sense of normalcy and any sense of routine. And I you know, wake up and I would call into my class from my phone because my laptop is broken um, and it doesn't let me do Zoom, lets me do everything else but not Zoom. So I would call in from my phone, usually from my bed, usually in PJs. And, you know, everybody would be tired. Everybody would, like, be in the same physical state that I am in. And we'd be really quiet. We wouldn't be answering questions the way we would in a normal classroom. And I think all of us just kind of just checked out. Um, and so I feel like the last half of the semester was just – it felt like it never even happened. Like, I had to do it. Like, I had to go to class and stuff. But it feels like we didn't learn anything. Um, and I think that that's not even the biggest problem when it comes to COVID's impact on education. I think the bigger problem is when schools reopen um, in the fall. I'm really worried that's going to put people's lives in danger because I think it will. Um, and I'm worried that people will get sick and people will die and that being in such close spaces on a college campus would be detrimental to the health of the students and to the public health of the surrounding areas. Um, and I am also worried that like people will party because they will. And those large kinds of gatherings are not, are not, are not something that the school really has a way to stop, but people will suffer because of that. And it's gonna be people who party, but it's gonna be people who don't. Um, so I'm really worried about what happens when we are not online anymore. But I also know that, you know, digital learning is accessible to every student. Um, and that no matter how it happens, it's going to be detrimental because some people need their work study jobs. Some people, um, it's not healthy for them to be living at home for whatever reason. Some people need to be in school for whatever reason. Um, some people would have to find a job if they weren't in school and the job market is really difficult right now. Um, there are a lot of individuals you know, who have plans long-term that demand for them to finish school at a certain time um, and to not take a gap semester or whatnot. And it's really difficult for, you know, not just people who work for the school, but also for the school itself. Some schools will shut down. And the essential workers who work for that school, the people who are, you know, making sure that everything is clean, the people who are cooking our food, those people need their jobs. And, you know, the economics of it is terrible because of the human toll of that. And I worry about how all those things are going to play out once we are back on campus. But I also know that there's no perfect solution in any kind of way. And I'm just hoping that the people who are making those choices are doing the best they can to be responsible to not just public health, but to the well-being of every single individual, not just the ones that they think are more important. Now, has, has your school given you any information on what next semester, next year is going to look like? Yeah. Um, there's a continuity plan in place. Um, 
so it's going to be remote some remote learning um we're mostly going to be in classrooms socially distanced some somehow which is absurd because i have lectures that have more than 100 people in them um you know we're going to be wearing masks around campus we are going to come home for this break and not go back it's all these things but the truth is that we're still going to have roommates we're going to have community showers community bathrooms and community dining halls and no matter how much they try to restrict it people will gather people will be with the speed of each other and people will contaminate each other and you know we can't wear a mask 24 7 like you you can't expect everyone to wear a mask to sleep that's absurd um but the truth is wearing a mask does help things a lot um and you know it's important that make us with them around the school but at the same time if somebody doesn't if a bunch of people don't you know that hurts every single person even the ones who are following the rules so it's just it's a really bad situation no matter how it happens and i don't think the guidelines are going to be sufficient um so have you or i'm trying to think of how to phrase this correctly but did you consider because i've heard a lot of people saying that if next year was online there was going to take a gap year and people have even interviewed have said that but your anxiety express has been more of actually going back and seeing what will happen then. Did you consider taking a gap, knowing that it is, there is a danger in going back? Um, well, the reason why I'm worrying so much about going back is because I already consider not going back. And my decision has been no. And the reason is, um, if I stay here for another six months, the issue isn't graduating on time because I, I can still graduate in three and a half years. Um, I can still manage to get that done. And that's important to me to graduate on time because I have to go to law school after this. And I would really like my life to be on track if that is at all possible. Um, but, you know, I don't want to be stuck in my childhood bedroom for another six months. That's not my idea of, no, like, it, it might be beneficial to, you know, my well-being. That's really important. But if I'm stuck here for six months, it's not just, you know, I'm not getting my education. It's also that there's, you know, there's paperwork that goes into that. And there's a process of, you know, information that happens and making sure that all the things I'm a part of, you know, take leadership and on-campus functions without me. And that's difficult when you are in a leadership role and people are counting on you. Um, it's difficult, you know, to figure out how I'm going to still do classes if I do online school and how that's all going to work. And you know, what if I spent half a semester learning and not learn anything? Because I really care about what I'm learning and I really care about my class and I want to learn fully. Um, but it's also the fact that like, if I don't go to school for another six months, life happens without me and it continues on and I don't want to have to play catch up. And it's, you know, all these things and they're not even the biggest problems because pro there are problems bigger than this, but it doesn't mean they're not real because they're actually the students have to make across the country and that's a difficult burden. It's difficult to try and figure out what to do when there's no good options. Um, and an option that, you know, kind of mitigates all that is for me to stay home, but, you know, like work, um, not like schoolwork, because I don't know how to do that at home. It, it's not how I want to do my college years, but to, you know, work on campaigns and everything, which is very much a viable option. However, the issue is campaigns aren't hiring at the same way that they were before. The job market is really, really incredibly difficult. And even if I do find a work on a campaign, the primary is, um, the prime Massachusetts is in September on September 1st, and then the general election is on November 3rd. So it only takes a part of my time, and I, do, 
I don't know how I can just sit idle for months and not do anything. Um, so I would need something to keep me busy. And right now the best option for how to do that is to go back to school and to just wear a mask around all the time, wash my hands like five times an hour and just avoid people. Um, you know, because the only thing is that I would have to take safety precautions, but I can still learn. My life can still happen. It's the most normal option. That might be why people are seriously considering it. So many of us, most of us are, is because that's the one that gives us the most normalcy and that has the least implications as long as we stay safe, which is very conditional. Now, going back, I guess, Moving back from the topic of college, but still staying on quarantine, um, what would a typical day for you in quarantine be like? It can, it can be both while you were taking online classes and now the month plus that we, there hasn't been online classes. Um, so, right when I was doing online classes, the spring semester, which ended a few months ago, actually, um, I would just go to my classes and then like not be doing anything else around it. It was, it was strange because when I'm on campus, I leave my dorm room in the morning and I'll come back until midnight because I'm always doing something. But because, you know, at home, I didn't have my job anymore because I was from school. Um, I didn't have, you know, all my meetings anymore. So I didn't have to be anywhere in the evening. And no, my, like, I don't have to, go to a dining hall, meet up with friends to get a meal because I'm just at home and the kitchen's right there. Um, so my schedule was just very empty all of a sudden. And now the classes are over, I am spending all my time doing campaign work and stuff. Um, so I am being kept busy, but it's just my days, me on Zoom and me texting people and me emailing people, just you know, using technology to reach outside the world and try to be productive. But it feels like I'm not doing anything sometimes, even though I am very much doing a lot of stuff. Um, and I th think if I go back on campus, it's going to feel the same way where, you know, like a lot of meetings can happen. Um, like there's no socializing the same way. I'm probably going to avoid the library in all study spaces. Um, so I'm probably going like, to study on the grass um, while it's still warm. But then once that's over, I'm literally just going to be in my dorm room all the time, just like waiting for, for classes and stuff. So, you know, it's going to be very bare bones, kind of, like living and trying to do things we would normally be doing. Um, but as long as, like, people stay safe and don't die, that's something that I'm willing to do for as long as I need to be doing it. Um, and I think that it's really, really important that we consider the human cost above convenience. Um, and I'm afraid that that's not something that the people in charge necessarily agree with me on. Now. I guess I'd ask a somewhat positive question, but during quarantine, has there been a, an event or a moment that you consider like the highlight that even though quarantine is a very negative time for most people, something that has stuck out to you as being a positive thing? Yeah, um, because of quarantine, I've had to organize in a different way than I normally would. And trying to figure out how to organize in a digital space and how to mobilize people to, you know, do work to advance the progressive movement and to fight for a better world, even when things are really, really awful, and to find a way to be productive through all of it. Um, 
that's been really wonderful because I get to work with my best friends. Um, you know, some of my closest friends from the one campaign are now working with me on the marketing campaign and we are unaffiliated with the marketing campaign. Um, however, we get to support him and organize for him on a volunteer basis. We have built a national grassroots movement of students fighting for a Green New Deal, for Medicare for All, for, you know, stronger unions, for all of these things, for net neutrality, um, for a cure to Alzheimer's, for all of these things that are champions. And we are able to rally around that in our own time, in our own way with flexibility of how we do it and to creatively organize our way into a better world um, and to have the campaign be appreciative of that um, has been really, really wonderful. Um, so, you know, it's hard to find a job and it's impossible to go knock someone's door but you know you can make phone calls still you can still talk to people you can still organize and you can do that all on your own and that's been really uplifting it's not just getting to work with my best friend but getting to do work that's really meaningful and that actively tries to create a better world one you know with solutions to a lot of problems we currently face in now if you can picture a few years in the future um so finally past 2020 and then looking back and thinking as a historian or thinking if you had to guess what historians would think what do you think they're going to focus on when they study this year because it has been a historic year for a lot of reasons so do you think there's a moment or a movement that they're going to focus on and write about um i think the first thing they should absolutely focus on is the Black Lives Matter movement and recognize that that's not something that's new, something that's been happening for literally hundreds of years in a lot of ways. And to give focus to the fight for racial justice in a way that history has never done before. Um, I think it's beyond time that history remembers things correctly and accurately and truthfully. Um, and I think it's really important that they do that justice um, because it's been a struggle that Black Americans have been fighting for for 400 years. And we do not live in an equal world. And if historians can do their part to make that possible, that would be phenomenal. Um, I think it's also really important for them to, you know, cover this pandemic, not just as a healthcare, not just as a crisis of public health, but also as something that has revealed so much about our current systems and to find a way to accurately reflect that while also giving credit to the people who are trying to make it better. Um, so my hope for history is that history remembers this year correctly in a way that does the moment justice in a way that history has never done prior. Now, is there anything else going on um, currently either at a local, national, even global level that I haven't asked you about, but you'd like to speak about? Um, right now, I am working um, to reelect a progressive champion of the Green New Deal and someone who's been working on climate policies for decades. He is someone who is a true progressive and who is a champion for the things um, that he fights for. And he's someone who is extremely good at his job. 
he fights for his community. He comes from a working class community, one that raised me too. And he is someone who is such a good legislator and a good public servant. Um, and he's getting primary from the right. So my hope is that the progressive movement, the one that's been building for so many years, re-elect him to the Massachusetts to the Senate um, for the state of Massachusetts. And my hope is that when that work is done, he can keep fighting for us for the next six years. He's also from Malden too, which is- He's also from Malden, which we love. We are very proud of that fact. I don't know where his house is, but I'll have to find that one day. It's like somewhere over there. Nobody can see why I'm pointing. It's somewhere over there. So, I guess I'll just ask the same question. Is there anything else you'd like to speak about? I think we covered everything. I don't think we can quite ever cover everything. But I mm-hmm. think we talked about the things that are the most important to talk about and the ones that are most timely to the year that we are in right now. Great. So these last two questions that I've asked, these are probably the only questions that I've asked the same across all interviews. But okay. um, and you've spoken pro- a lot to this a lot throughout the rest of the questions. But what do you think the next steps forward are? And that can either be to you personally, your local community, as a nation, as a people, just what do you think the next steps forward are? I think it's becoming abundantly clear that the power of the people are greater than the people in power. And I think it's becoming so viscerally evident that grassroots movements, championing progressive candidates and causes can and do win. And I think that it's clear that the movement is strong and that we are fighting an uphill fight, but it's a righteous one, and that we are succeeding in that fight. And I am hopeful that we are at a turning point um, where the world beyond it will be more just, it will be more equal, um, and it will be better for so many more people. I'm hopeful that that is possible and that that is achievable and that the work that we are all doing is bringing that day closer and closer Um, So that's what's next for me, both politically, personally, professionally, academically. And I think that that's what's happening on a scale much bigger than just myself. It's happening in my state. It's happening in the country. It's happening across the world. Now, I feel a bit silly asking the last question because you basically answered it twice in in your last answer. But I've asked everyone, so I'll have to ask you too. Are you hopeful? I am very hopeful. I'm cautiously hopeful. And, you know, as someone who is simultaneously idealistic and pragmatic, I think that that's kind of where I am all the time um, is to figure out how do I reasonably assess what's going on around me, but still be optimistic that it doesn't have to stay this way forever, the better is possible, and then to fight for that. Um, But I am cautiously hopeful, and I think that caution is important because it keeps us vigilant it keeps us aware and awake um but that hope is what gets to a better world not fear but hope the hope that change is possible that we can be the change makers ourselves well thank you so much for sharing um again this this was a moment in history the 10th episode potentially the last one in case i can't (laughs) find more people to interview (laughs) i'm honored if that's the case i'm honored the goal was to get 10 and I've gotten 10, so I'm happy now. Um, for all of those who listen or will listen, thank you. We hope 
this interview shines a light on this moment in history. Um, again, this took place over Zoom. So if there are any technical difficulties or any trouble in here at any point, it is, we can blame Zoom for that. Yes, we um, will. We absolutely will. And thank, thank you again for sharing. My name is Harrison Zyber. This is WCCS Podcast, A Moment in History.